Welcome to episode 160 of the Fredcast Cycling Podcast for June 21st, 2010. My name is David, and I'm a Fred. In this week's episode of the Fredcast, the LAPD, if they can't beat them, well, they'll join them. Product recall, lots of professional cycling news. Davis, California, attempting a bicycle parade world record, and another cyclist is chased by a bear. Following the news, an upcoming event, a Tour de France and stage racing primer, and of course, pod safe cycling music. So sit back, relax, and if you're riding your bike hammer, just a little bit harder, because here comes the Fredcast. Once again, fellow Freds, welcome back to another episode of the Fredcast, and welcome to the longest day of the year and the first day of summer. Now, before we get started with today's show, I want to remind you that we are getting ready for the Bike MS event here in Utah. You know what an important cause this is to me personally, and what an important cause it is probably to somebody that you know in your life. It's too late for you to join Team Fredcast to ride with us this year, but you can help out Go to tinyurl.com slash fredsagainstms and learn how you can help out. Every donation counts, and I want to thank so many Fredcast fans who have helped out so far. So please consider donating to our cause. Go to tinyurl.com slash fredsagainstms. Help us find the cause and cure of this dreadful disease And in the meantime, help support those whose lives are affected by multiple sclerosis every single day. That's tinyurl.com slash fredsagainstms. I really thank you for your support of this very important cause. Well, it's time for the news on this week's episode of the Fredcast. And before we get to the news, I want to remind you that the news segment this week is sponsored by Keen Footwear. We've been talking about Keen for a number of weeks and the fact that they help you live a hybrid life They help you get out there and experience the great outdoors, whether that's in an urban environment or in the most secluded spot on earth. You can do it all in your Keens. And to get yourself a new pair of Keens, Keen has a special offer for Fredcast listeners. Go to thefredcast.com and click on the Keen banner. Once you're there, choose your Keens and use the promo code FRED, F-R-E-D, at checkout, and Keen is going to give you free shipping just until June 26th. This is a special offer just for Fredcast fans, so take advantage of it this week before June 26th. Use the promo code FRED at checkout and get free shipping. We thank Keen Footwear so much for their support of the news on this week's episode of the Fredcast, and we thank you for your support of Keen. Now, let's get to the news. Following on the heels of that May 28th event on Hollywood Boulevard when several LAPD or Los Angeles Police Department officers were videoed in what appeared to be an altercation with a cyclist and with someone who was videoing that altercation. As a result of that event, the LAPD has decided that they are going to join the next critical mass event 
on bicycles of their own. Now, according to LAPD Chief Charlie Beck, well, he's been promising better relations between police and cyclists in the wake of that event that we talked about on a recent episode of the Fredcast. But now there is a flyer being circulated by the Los Angeles Police Department saying in part, and I quote, the Los Angeles Police Department supports and encourages responsible cycling as well as cyclists' right to fair an equitable use of the roadways. The department is also committed to protecting cyclists' First Amendment right to call attention to issues affecting their community. In keeping with the department's mission and in response to the cycling community's calls for police involvement and participation, the LAPD will be present at the next Los Angeles critical mass ride scheduled for June 25, 2010. The release goes on to say that there are those who go to critical mass in order to mask their illegal and dangerous activities, including vandalism, thefts, assaults, criminal thefts, drinking in public, smoking and using illicit substances, and driving or riding under the influence, running red lights and stop signs, or crossing the center line or riding against traffic. It says the department will support the rights of all persons to peacefully gather and bring attention to their cause, but... Officers will be present to ensure the safety of all those who lawfully participate and will take enforcement action against those who violate the law or the vehicle code. Seems to me <laughs> that, that perhaps the officers are getting involved in critical mass simply to keep the critical mass riders from breaking the law whereas maybe they're not so interested in any other activities. That's the way the release reads to me. Now, I think I've made it fairly clear on the show that uh, you know I'm not a huge fan of critical mass. Certainly support what uh, uh, the critical mass folks are trying to get across in their message. I think that some of the, the tactics that are used by some who participate in critical mass, not everyone, because I think a lot of folks go to critical mass uh, simply to go out and have a a good time, uh, to have a great ride, and to try to promote awareness for cycling. But I think that there are indeed others who run red lights uh, and sort of run afoul of the law. And uh, so it's it's those sorts of things that I certainly don't support. Seems to me that uh, while LAPD is saying that they're there to support the rights of the cyclists, to protect their rights, and to keep the cyclists safe, Reading between the lines of the press release, intentional or not, my uh, interpretation in reading between the lines is that they're only there to keep those cyclists in check. It's going to be interesting to see what happens this coming Friday night. Uh, If you are out there and you are participating in Critical Mass, I'd love to hear from you and know what your experiences are now that the LAPD has decided to join you on Friday night. And for those of you who may be driving, because it is L.A. after all, to Critical Mass on Friday night, if you've got a Thule Domestique bicycle carrier that you purchased between April and May of 2010, specifically model number 513, you should know that Thule has issued a recall in cooperation with the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration for those models. They have found that a defect exists which may, quote, impact motor vehicle safety. Thule is requesting that all consumers stop using the rack immediately. 
The problem is that there is an area of this rack which has a bolt that goes through it. And if that portion of the rack fails, that portion may become loose, resulting in an instability of the front end of the bike carrier and therefore any attached bicycle. And that could cause both the bike carrier and the attached bicycle to break free or separate from the vehicle. In order to remedy the situation, you're asked to call Thule Customer Service at 1-800-238-2388, and Thule will provide you at no charge either a recall kit or a completely new domestic bicycle carrier, which will not have the noted problem. Once again, these products were sold at automobile supply stores, sporting goods stores, and bicycle specialty stores between April and May 2010, and the suggested retail price was $139.95. In pro cycling news last week, the big news was the conclusion of the Tour of Switzerland, or the Tour de Suisse. The final stage was an individual time trial that saw Lance Armstrong move up from 7th place all the way up into second place on the final podium. Tony Martin winning the final stage 26.9 kilometers in 32 minutes and 21 seconds. Fabian Consolara, the world champion in the time trial, 17 seconds behind Tony Martin with Dave Zabriskie from Team Garmin Transitions coming in 29 seconds back. At the end, it was Frank Schleck from Saxo Bank winning the Tour of Switzerland in 35 hours, 2 minutes flat, and just 12 seconds behind him, 38-year-old Lance Armstrong from Team Radio Shack. In third place on the final podium, Frank's Saxo Bank teammate, Jake Fugelsang, 17 seconds behind Frank Schleck. BMC's Steve Morbido was 23 seconds back in fourth place, and in fifth, 27 seconds back, Back was Robert Gessink from Team Robobank. These are great results for Frank Schleck, brother of Andy, both of whom are looking very strong for the Tour de France coming up on July the 3rd, but really favorable results for Lance Armstrong. With his showing here, Frank Schleck showing, Andy's strong showing in the mountain stage at the Tour of California, and of course, Alberto Contador's strong showing recently in the Dauphiné Libéré. It is clear that the competition at the 2010 Tour de France is going to be extremely tight. But I think perhaps one of the biggest stories of the week at the Tour of Switzerland was the crash that occurred in the final few meters of stage four of the Tour of Switzerland. That stage was won by Alessandro Pataki, but it was before the finish line where the controversy occurred, where Mark Cavendish from Team HTC Columbia veered in front of Heinrich Hausler, changing his line at the last moment in a showing of very bad form, or perhaps, some are saying, an intentional act, cutting off Hausler, destroying Cavendish's front wheel. And if you saw the photo, it looked like something out of Salvador Dali, where literally Cavendish's wheel split 
in about a third and two-thirds. He ended up hitting the deck. Hausler driving over him himself, also hitting the deck and causing a mass pileup before the finish. Heisler, who was understandably quite upset, was quoted after the the stage as saying, quote, I didn't see Cavendish coming. He drove into my wheel, and before I knew it, I went down and was lying on the ground. I could have won the stage. Pataki, the winner of the stage, said, quote, I don't like winning this way. If Cavendish hadn't crashed, for sure, he'd have won. I was far behind, and I didn't have any chance to win otherwise. Maybe the wind had something to do with this unfortunate finish. In that case, I think Pataki was being kind. So did the officials, by the way, who gave Cavendish a 30-second penalty and docked 25 points for that crash from Cavendish's accumulated points for the race. The Peloton also showed their outrage for Cavendish's act as they held up the start of the following day's stage for several minutes in protest of Cavendish's actions. Cavendish did show up at the start line of that day's stage with his right knee in a bandage and was quoted as saying, quote, I'm not going to say that I'm not at fault, but I don't think I should have been held as the sole person responsible. It's the worst fall of my career, the worst injuries that I've suffered, but there are riders who are in a worse state than me. The next day, Mark Cavendish pulled out of the Tour of Switzerland to get ready for his upcoming Tour de France. Of course, international stage racing is not the only form of bicycle racing out there. And for those of you like me who like to do long distance events, centuries, double metrics, double centuries, brevets, and beyond, well, a lot of us think about the folks who do the race across America and Even we think they're a little bit crazy, but we admire what it is that they do. And the race across America, at least the single men's division, has recently completed. And Jur Robic won the race across America for the fifth time last Friday, completing the 3,000-mile journey in nine days, one hour and one minute. He averaged 13.85 miles per hour over what is exactly 3,004 miles. Now, if the name Jerobic is familiar to you, that's because he won in 2004, 2005, 2007, and 2008, and he is the only solo man to win the race more than three times. And when he finished this year, he was more than 180 miles ahead of his nearest competitor. Now, for those of you who are wondering about a race like the Race Across America, no, the racers are not on their bikes 24 hours a day nonstop. They only spend about 21, 22 hours a day on their bikes. The rest of the time is spent eating, sleeping, showering, getting massages, and recovering as best they can before they are back on their ride, out on the roads, no matter what the weather, no matter whether they're hallucinating things, jumping out of the bushes or not, which, by the way, does happen as you get more and more fatigued once you've been on a bike for over nine days. Nevertheless, congratulations to Jur Robic for winning the 29th annual race across America. Well, unfortunately for Jerobic, 
Endurance racers do not figure into the UCI's world rankings. Very few changes in the top 10 from the last time we went over this. Cadell Evans still in first, followed by Philippe Gilbert, Joaquin Rodriguez, Alberto Contador, Luis Leon Sanchez, and Tom Bonin in sixth place. Fabian Consolara moves up to seventh place from ninth. Ivan Basso moves down to eighth from seventh. Michele Scarponi moves to ninth from eighth. And Alexander Vinokorov is still in 10th place. Next event of major consequence on the world calendar, of course, is the Tour de France, which begins July the 3rd and goes through July the 25th. For those of you who follow me on Twitter, you'll know that last week I tweeted briefly that it looked like an opportunity to go to the Tour de France and the Alps fell into my lap late last week. Unfortunately, I was not able to put the logistics together You have no idea how bummed I am. I was really looking forward to being able to report directly from the Tour de France for once, but it looks like that eluded me this year. I'm going to try to put something together, hopefully for next year, to be able to report to you from France. Nevertheless, I'll be behind the microphone here July the 3rd through the 25th, bringing you info on the Tour de France. Now, of course, the third and final Grand Tour of the year is, as always, the Vuelta a España, which takes place August the 28th through September the 19th this year. And this is the 75th anniversary of the Vuelta a España. Last week, the organizers of the Vuelta announced the 22 teams who are going to compete in this year's race. They include Astana, Quickstep, Yuskotel-Yuskedi, Andalusia Cajasur, Jacobeo Galicia, Cervelo Test, Team Sky, Katusha, and Garmin Transitions. Did you notice a name that is not included? Well, Johan Brunil sure did. Because Radio Shack is conspicuous by their absence. Not only did Johan Bernil notice, but so did Philippe Martin's team spokesman, who was quoted as saying, quote, They told us we were not selected because other teams were better in their eyes. We're not happy about it. If you're not invited to a party, you cannot go to court and say, Hey, I want to be at that party. It's not fair. It's not logical. That's life. It does seem a bit illogical, however, that Team Radio Shack was not included. Consider the fact that Janic Brokovic won the Dauphiné Libéré. Levi Leipheimer won the Tour of the Gila. Chris Horner won the Tour of the Basque Country. And lest we forget, Lance Armstrong's performance at the recently concluded Tour of Switzerland. This just doesn't make sense. And apparently Johan Brunil agrees, saying, quote, it's high time for professional cycling to become professional. The structure of our sport needs to change towards a model of other successful professional sports like soccer, tennis, Formula One, etc. Even if some party don't even if some parties don't like to see or hear this, I will do anything in my power to contribute to making this happen. Up until now, it has never been accepted that a team manager stands on a soapbox to defend the rights of the teams and the riders. We always have to accept we don't have many rights. After this, I take it as a personal mission. From now on, I will fight for the interests of the cycling teams. It will be more than just a goal. I will work for it as hard as I've worked for my own team. 
In cycling, there are three parties, UCI, organizers, and the teams and riders. Unlike in other professional sports, the teams and riders are the main actors who are never heard. I will fight for our rights, for other things that are rightfully belonging to us, but we never get. And then he goes on to say the following. There is an abuse of power. Some organizers take away the hunger of potential sponsors to invest in our sport. It is unjust that a new sponsor, like Radio Shack, coming into cycling with a lot of enthusiasm, is not rewarded for their financial input. I cannot accept or understand this decision. With Levi Leipheimer, Andreas Kloden, Chris Horner, and Yanni Brockovic, we had four potential Vuelta winners on the roster we sent to Unipublik. That's the organizers of the Vuelta. For me, it is hard to explain to my sponsor that 22 other teams are apparently better than us, especially when it isn't true. These actions are unfair to our sponsors as well as a blow to our fans. Now, I know that there's a lot of you that listen to this podcast that are Team Radio Shack fans. How do you feel about this? Unipublic, it's their race. Do they have the opportunity to say, sorry, Radio Shack, we don't want you there? Or do you think that Radio Shack was wronged? Let me know. Send me an email or send me a voicemail, and I promise that I will share your thoughts with the rest of the Fredcast listeners. And while we're discussing Team Radio Shack, their most prominent member is Lance Armstrong, and he appears on this month's cover of Outside Magazine. The cover of the magazine shows Lance, and he's wearing a T-shirt. And on the T-shirt are the words 38 BFD, as in, yeah, I'm 38, what's the big deal? For those of you who know what BFD stands for, you know that I'm paraphrasing just a little bit. Well, after the magazine appeared on the newsstands and Lance had the opportunity to see the cover, he tweeted the following. Just saw the cover of the new Outside Magazine with yours truly on it. Nice Photoshop on a plain t-shirt, guys. That's some lame BS. And no, he did not say BS. So here's the controversy. Lance apparently went to the photo shoot wearing a plain t-shirt. The editors, specifically the photo editors at Outside Magazine, put the words and the numbers 38 BFD on the t-shirt. Lance was not pleased. Apparently, they didn't tell him that they were going to be doing it, and he wasn't happy with the fact that they did. Outside Magazine responded on their website by saying the following. We understand that our July news stand cover featuring Lance Armstrong has caused a bit of a ruckus, thanks to Twitter. Yes, it's true that following our cover shoot with Lance, we had some Photoshop fun on the t-shirt he was wearing, BFD. We copped to it right there on the cover. See the line reading, note, not Armstrong's real t-shirt. We wanted to create a provocative image and make a bold statement about the fact that, because of Armstrong's age, many cycling fans are skeptical of his chances in this year's Tour de France. Read what we think his odds are by clicking below. So, here's the question. Big deal or not a big deal? Quite frankly, if I was 38 years old and able to be one of the top, say, five contenders in a three-week marathon athletic event, perhaps, in my opinion, one of the toughest athletic events, perhaps the toughest in the world. If I was 38 years old 
and considered among the top five contenders at that event, I'd be pretty proud of it. And yeah, I'd be saying, look, folks, I'm 38, BFD. I can beat 23-year-olds, and everybody knows it. Just look at how I did in last year's Tour de France. So I could certainly see someone like Lance wearing a T-shirt that said something like that. Here's the problem. Nobody told Lance that they were going to be doing this. I have a feeling if they had said, hey, Lance, we would love to Photoshop this onto your T-shirt, in that circumstance, there's every possibility that Lance would have said, hey, go right ahead and do it. In this case, however, I think Lance was upset because nobody asked for his permission. And that, I believe, is the entire controversy surrounding this issue. I know that Outside Magazine is going to be at press camp with me later this week. Hopefully, I'll have a chance to talk to them about the controversy. In the meantime, if you've got thoughts, feel free to let me know. Now, on a more serious and concerning note, Team Katusha's Kim Kirken, who was participating in the Tour of Switzerland earlier last week, was rushed to the hospital after suffering what appears to have been a heart attack. He was then placed in a medically induced coma. He was brought out of that coma earlier today and appears to be on the mend. A very serious and concerning situation that found a lot of fans and professional cyclists alike expressing concern on Facebook, on Twitter, and elsewhere. For those of you who may not be familiar with Kim Kirken, he's 31 years old. He wore the Maillot Jean, the yellow jersey, in the Tour de France for several stages in 2008. He also wore the Mayo Vert, the green points jersey, for several stages in 2008 as well. He's the Luxembourg National Time Trial Champion from 2008 and 2009 and the Road Race Champion from Luxembourg in 2004 and 2006. According to a statement issued on the Team Katusha website today, quote, Kim Kirken comes out of induced coma and shows immediately good signals. He recognized immediately his wife and his father, and he asked what's happened because he didn't remember anything. At the moment, he shows no problem at heart and lungs. It will continue more tests for to know the origin of the problem. Our thoughts and prayers are with Kim and with his family for a speedy recovery and hopefully a return to professional cycling soon. Last week, the Larry H. Miller Tour of Utah, presented by Zions Bank, announced their confirmed lineup of professional road racing teams. And quite frankly, with the demise of several uh, professional races here in the United States, it is great to see the Tour of Utah continuing, a race that had had its problems several years ago. Among the 11 professional teams invited to attend this year's Tour of Utah, Adagio Energy, Bahati Foundation, Bissell Pro Cycling, Fly V Australia, Holowesco Partners, Garmin Under 23, Jameis Sutter Home, Kelly Benefit Strategies, Kenda Pro Cycling, powered by Gear Grinder, Trek Livestrong Development Team, Team Type 1, and United Healthcare, presented by Maxis. Seven elite teams were also added to the roster this year, including the official California Giant Cycling Team, Canyon Bicycles Utah All-Stars, Cole Sport Racing, Team Exergy, Hagen's Berman Cycling Team, K-Fan Elite Composite Team, and Team Rio Grande. The Tour of Utah takes place August 17th 
through the 22nd here in Utah, beginning on August 17th with a 2.8-mile time trial prologue and ending on August 22nd with the Snowboard, Ski, and Summer Resort Park City to Snowbird Queen Stage, 102.5 miles and a very tough five figures of climbing elevation. You can expect full coverage of the Larry H. Miller Tour of Utah right here on the Fredcast coming up this August. And closing out our professional cycling news segment for this week's episode of the Fredcast comes news from the UCI that they have decided to pay much closer attention to so-called race service. Those are the team mechanics at the upcoming Tour de France, specifically in response to the allegations that some racers, specifically focusing on Fabian Consolara, some racers may be using unfair mechanical advantages or so-called motor doping to gain a competitive advantage over their competitors. As you'll recall, there is a video from an Italian website that is purporting to show how motor doping would occur and showing what they claim could be Fabian Consolara activating motor doping uh, or an electronic motor at recent races that he won earlier this year. A statement from the UCI said, quote, the members of the management committee discussed issues concerning equipment used in road competitions and decided it was necessary to bolster measures that have already been put in place. As a result, a scanner will be used from the time of the Tour de France. This instrument, recently tested with a successful outcome, will allow an official to detect any illegal devices that may be concealed, for example, in the bicycle frame. From now on, race service will be subject subject to stricter regulation in order to ensure that only equipment that has been checked at the start or finish can be used during competitions. I would love to see one of these scanners and learn exactly how it works. Unless it's an x-ray, I can't imagine how it would work and how it would differentiate between, say, the new Shimano electronic shifting, uh, a power meter, or any of the other electronic sensors that are already on bicycles, and a motor that would be perhaps embedded or hidden within a frame. I'm hoping that the UCI makes this device clear and shows it to the media and others so that we can get a better idea of how it might work. For now, just know that the UCI is definitely paying closer attention to the bikes themselves beyond the already visual checks that they already do and also to the work that mechanics are doing in the pits at these races. Well, moving away from professional competitive cycling, I found a way for you to get yourself involved in a world record bicycle feat. I mean, who wouldn't want to say that they were a world record holding cyclist? Well, here is your chance. Get yourself to Davis, California on October 3rd, 2010. If you are there with more than 3,515 others, then chances are you too can be a world record holder. Davis, California has announced a citywide effort to break the world record for the largest parade of bicycles currently held by Bangkok, Thailand and recognized by the Guinness 
book of world records. Davis is expecting thousands of cyclists to attend. You can be one of them, and they're going to have more details in the coming weeks. I put a link in the show notes to where you can find more info on this attempt at worldsgreatestbicycleparade.com. They've also got a Facebook page, and you can follow their Twitter feed at Bicycle Parade. If you do go, and if you do become a world record holder, please let me know, and I will be certain to mention your feet on an episode of the Fredcast this coming October. And finally tonight, a story of yet another cyclist being attacked or at least chased by a bear. This one in the very same area where we reported, I think it was about a year or so ago, on a 15-year-old girl who was in a bike race who suffered a crushed skull and almost died as a result of being attacked by a bear. Sean Berkey, a 45-year-old pediatric pharmacist in Anchorage, ran into a bear on the Rover's Run Trail at 5.30 in the morning last Tuesday as he headed to work at the Alaska Native Medical Center. As he prepared to cross a bridge, he came upon a female bear and her cub. He stopped, hoping that the bear would you know, basically leave him alone. But perhaps because of the cub's proximity, the bear decided to charge. And he initially tried to shield himself using his bike. But when that didn't work, he played dead, thinking that that was the best thing to do when being attacked by a brown bear. Then tried to get away. The bear continued to attack, and he played dead again. The bear swatted at him and bit him. And he eventually was able to get on his bike and ride to a hospital. At this point, it is now up to the city of Anchorage, Alaska, to determine whether or not they're going to close the trail. Now, since this is the second story of a bear chasing or a bear attack in as many weeks, I thought I'd give you a little bit of advice that I found online about what to do if you should encounter a bear when you're in the wilderness. First of all, One of the best things if you are in bear country is to ride together in groups. There are, there is definitely safety in numbers. Now, I know that when I go hiking in bear country that I carry bear bells attached to my backpack, and there's no reason why you can't do the same thing on your mountain bike if you are in bear country. Indeed, I have been known to do that myself if I know that I'm in an area where bears are known to frequent, especially in the time of year when the bears are likely to have their cubs with them when they're out there Uh, in the wilderness. By the way, I've been known to carry bear bells also during deer season, not because I'm concerned that the deer are going to attack me, but because quite frankly, sometimes hunters are just a little bit careless when they're excited and trying to bag that first buck of the season. I would prefer not to have my antlers uh, mounted above some hunter's mantelpiece in their home. Now, besides riding in groups and carrying bear bells, you could also 
consider what should you do if you are indeed attacked by a bear. Apparently, there's a saying that I found online that I'd never heard before, and it tends to go against what we just heard in the previous story, and it goes like this. Black bear, fight back. Grizzly bear, play dead. Polar bear, you're dead. So in this case, our pharmacist in Alaska was being attacked by a black bear. He played dead, thinking that that was the thing to do. According to the saying, would have been better if he had tried to fight back. The other thing, and I know that this is a bit controversial, but if you're in bear country and you're hiking or you're mountain biking, you might consider carrying bear spray. Now, I know that when I was doing a lot of hiking in California in bear country and I went into my local REI outlet and I tried to buy bear spray, I know that the the uh, salesperson did everything that he could do to prevent me from buying the spray, thinking that in some way it was inhumane. Well, I'm going to be honest with you. If I'm going to be attacked by a bear, I'd rather give them a little spritz and make them feel uncomfortable for a little while than go home in a box. That may be controversial, but that's how I feel. And if you've got some tips of your own on how to deal with riding and hiking in bear country, please send them in to me and I will be happy to share them with your fellow Fredcast listeners. But with that story, that will conclude the news for this week's episode of the Fredcast. Now, before we move on, I want to thank another one of our sponsors, and that's Jensen USA. Go to www.jensenusa.com slash thefredcast, where you can confirm what I've been telling you, that Jensen USA has an amazing selection of products, fantastic prices, and unparalleled customer service. I got an email from John in New Zealand who said, Greetings, David. Via the link on your webpage, I recently purchased new tires from Jensen. They were half price that I could get in New Zealand and arrived within seven days. Simply fantastic. Well, John, thanks so much for sharing your experience with Jensen USA. And for those of you who are listening, if you haven't yet tried Jensen USA, I urge you to do so for your next purchase of cycling products. Once you've given Jensen a try, you will not want to go anywhere else. Go to www.jensenusa.com slash thefredcast and give Jensen USA a try. I know that you will be pleased with their selection, their prices, and their support. We thank Jensen USA so much for their support of the Fredcast, and we thank you for your support of Jensen USA. First up in our features tonight, just a really quick one, is an upcoming event that I found out about yesterday that sounds very intriguing and something I am thinking of making a road trip just to try out. This is the Think Cure Bike Challenge, and it takes place November 14th, 2010, in the city of Los Angeles, and it features three fundraising rides to help find a cure for cancer. This is the official charity of the Los Angeles Dodgers, and it supports collaborative cancer research at the City of Hope and Children's Hospitals in Los Angeles. Here's the cool thing about the event. Part of the route, whether you choose the 22-mile community ride, the 62-mile metric century, or the 100-mile century ride, part of each of those routes includes a ride along and on the closed 
110 Pasadena Freeway in Los Angeles. And if you have any experience in Southern California, you know that that is a major artery in the city. So how cool is it going to be to shut down the 110 Freeway and for you and I to be able to ride our bikes on it as part of a great fundraising effort. It's the Think Cure Bike Challenge, November 14th, 2010 in the city of Los Angeles. And yes, there is a link in the show notes to where you can get more information and register yourself to participate in what should be a great experience. Well, now I want to get to something that has been requested by several of you in emails, and I thought with the Tour de France coming up, now is the best time to do it. I'm calling this my Tour de France primer, but really it's a primer about stage racing. Let's talk a little bit about the Tour de France specifically, and as we talk about the Tour, you'll also find a lot of these topics being applicable to many other stage races around the world. Now, the Tour de France began in 1903. 2009 was the 96th edition of the event, with the event having been suspended due to, well, a couple of wars at the beginning of the 20th century. The first winner was Maurice Guerin from France, Alberto Contador from Spain, the most recent winner. And for those of you who didn't know, the most prolific winner of the Tour de France is Lance Armstrong from the United States, having won seven editions of the Tour de France from 1999 through 2005. Now, the Tour de France can begin in pretty much any location in Europe, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. Um, but it typically ends on the Champs-Élysées in Paris, France. Now, the Tour de France is considered a grand tour. The other two grand tours of the three major grand tours every year are the Giro d'Italia, which recently concluded, Giro d'Italia meaning Tour of Italy, and the Vuelta a España, which takes place in the August through September time period, Vuelta a España meaning Tour of Spain, and of course, Tour de France, meaning the Tour of France. Now, what makes a Grand Tour? Well, the Grand Tours are three-week-long events known as stage races. Every day is a different stage of the entire event. Think of a stage a lot like a chapter in a book. If you're going to read a book, it's typically broken up into individual chapters, stages similar to chapters, the Grand Tour itself similar to the entirety of the book. Now, as the three weeks of a Grand Tour progress, there are typically two rest days, one at the end of the first week and another at the end of the second week, allowing racers a day off, if you will, from racing. But one of the things that you will often find is that the racers are not off their bikes. They're just out of competition because they still need to get out there on their bikes in order to uh, make sure that it assists in, believe it or not, in their recovery so that the next day they will be in even better shape for the next day's stage. Grand Tours typically have fewer than two dozen teams at 
the event. And one of the things my my parents always ask me, you know, I'll go off to the tour of Utah or the tour of California and they'll say, well, are you riding? Well, no, mom and dad, I'm not riding because I'm not a professional cyclist. So these teams are typically made up of professional cyclists, some of whom are on the international circuit, UCI Pro Tour or World Calendar type teams. And then there are typically also pro-continental teams, professional racers who race specifically only in Europe, but who don't go to races, uh, professional races outside of Europe. And these teams are typically invited by the organizers of the event. And in the case of the Tour de France, that's the Amori Sports Organization, or ASO. So as we go through July, you'll hear me talk about ASO, or the Amori Sports Organization, you'll know that that is the company that organizes and puts on the Tour de France. And this is the organization who issues its invitations to the teams who come to its race every year. Now, one of the things that can tend to confuse is that it is called the Tour de France, the Tour of France. Why is it, therefore, that recently a Tour de France started in England and why is it that this year the Tour de France begins in Holland? Well, ever since the 1960s, because the route changes every single year, in order to bring some variety to the Tour, to its route, and also in order to bring the Tour to spectators in other parts of Europe, organizers have indeed brought the Tour de France to other locations. So again, starting in London a couple of years ago, beginning in Holland this year, just as the Giro d'Italia, right? The Tour of Italy started in Amsterdam this year. So will the Tour de France begin in Holland this year as well. Now, it makes sense that the Tour might occasionally touch Germany or Italy or Spain because these countries border France, especially when we start talking about some of the mountain passes and some of the mountain stages that occur during a, during a Tour de France. But yes, occasionally, riders will start in a farther away location and then take trains or airplanes to get back to the country of France. But despite the fact that the Tour de France may touch other nations, it will, well, at least for the foreseeable future, always end on the Champs-Élysées in central Paris. We talked a moment ago about the stages in a Grand Tour, and specifically in the Tour de France, and those stages or chapters, as I mentioned earlier, can be of different types. So in a lot of races, a lot of Grand Tours, the very first stage is often not called stage number one, but is often called a prologue, which is typically a very short race against the clock where each racer starts and finishes by himself and is simply racing a very short course, perhaps two or three miles, to get the fastest time in order to give uh, all of the spectators in the local area a good long look at all of the racers, get the racers uh, legs stretched out and ready for the days and weeks to come and to establish the initial leader of the race. So that's typically a prologue. And this race against the clock is known as an individual time trial. 
You have a set course. Everybody races the exact same course. And the winner that day is the person who has the lowest time. That would be a stage winner. So that is one award that somebody could win during a stage race or a grand tour. Now, there are other types of stages. Now, we talked about an individual time trial. There's also a team time trial event. There is no team time trial in this year's 2010 Tour de France. A team time trial is very similar to an individual time trial in that it's a race against the clock. But instead of each racer starting the stage by himself, a team starts together. And the time that is given to each of those individuals is based on when the fifth member of the team crosses the finish line. So that requires the team to stay together and requires them to ensure that they have five members finishing. The team who has the fastest time on that day wins that day's stage. There are still other types of stages that you might see. A road stage, and this is pretty typical for most of the stages in a grand tour or a general stage race. This is simply a longer event, could be 100 miles or more, where the entire group of racers, the entire field, all 20 some odd teams, begins the day as a bunch and races to see who can get across the finish line first. And once again, that would be your stage winner. There are also mountain stages. Just like a regular road stage, everybody begins at the same time. But typically on a mountain stage, there are just more mountains. And we'll talk about the way that we categorize mountains in order to give racers and spectators an idea of the difficulty of the day. Now, in a lot of stage races, although not in the Tour de France typically, there's another type of stage known as a criterium. A criterium is usually a circuit race or a race that where everyone begins together at the starting line and then they race around a relatively short circuit going around and around that same circuit typically for a predetermined number of laps or a predetermined time period. And once again, the winner of the stage is the first racer to cross the finish line at the end of that predetermined number of laps or predetermined time period. No criterion in the Tour de France. But something that's relatively similar is at the end of a typical road stage, there may be what are known as finishing circuits, where in order to give the spectators a good look at the racers. They will add, say, three, four, or five circuits of a short course once they get into the finishing town, say after 100 miles or so. They get into that finishing town, and then there's a circuit course like a criterium with a predetermined number of laps that the racers need to make around that circuit before someone ends up winning the day's stage. Now, a lot of times, the stage coming into the Champs-Élysées turns into just such a circuit race or sort of a finishing criterion. Although most years, that final day 
to the Champs-Élysées is really a victory lap for the racer who has had the lowest time, and we'll get to that in a moment, throughout the three weeks, a chance for them to enjoy the spoils of victory, perhaps share a couple of glasses of champagne while they ride their bike before coming into Paris triumphant as the winner of a Tour de France. So then how do we determine who wins the Tour de France? Well, that's a bit complicated because the way that I look at a stage race, a grand tour, the Tour de France specifically, I look at it as many races within a single race. Now, of course, we've got the individual stages. Every day there's a race from start to finish, and someone wins that day as the first person to cross the finish line. But overall, the winner of the Tour de France is that person who finishes the three weeks. You must finish every stage, and you must cross that final finish line in Paris. The person who finishes that finish line with the lowest accumulated time over the three weeks is deemed the winner of the Tour de France, the winner of what's called the General Classification, or the GC for short. The General Classification is simply a ranking of racers based on who has the lowest accumulated time over the three weeks. And the winner of the general classification, the person who has the lowest accumulated time, wears the yellow jersey or the Mayo Jean, simply yellow jersey in or yellow shirt in French. The person who has the lowest accumulated time wins the final Mayo Jean. But as we go through the three weeks, for instance, let's say there's a prologue as I described earlier, at the end of that prologue, whoever has the lowest time in that prologue wears the Mayo Jean the next day, signifying that that racer has the lowest accumulated time so far. So the Mayo Jean can change hands literally every single day, or it is theoretically possible for a racer to grab the Mayo Jean on day one and wear it every single day until they get to the Champs-Élysées in Paris at the end of the three weeks. Theoretically possible, typically doesn't happen. So the Mayo Jean is what signifies the overall winner of the Tour de France who has the least accumulated time and has therefore won the general classification or the GC. And a little bit of trivia, some of you may be aware that Lance Armstrong owns a bicycle shop in Austin, Texas, and it's called Mellow Johnny's. The reason it's called Mellow Johnny's is because of all the Mayo Johns that Lance Armstrong has won. Now, sort of say Mayo Jean with sort of a Texas accent, overemphasize and be just more of a caricature, if you will, and you might say it was a Mellow Johnny, a Mayo Jean, and hence the name of his store. Now, as you're watching a Tour de France or a stage race, you may hear somebody, a race announcer, for instance, talk about the virtual yellow jersey or the virtual leader on the road. Imagine, if you will, that uh, a particular racer, we'll call him Jean. Let's say that Jean 
is 60 seconds behind in the general classification behind Philippe. But let's say that Jean goes and sprints ahead of the main pack, and Philippe stays in the main pack. If at some point during that day's stage, we find that Jean is more than 60 seconds ahead of Philippe, well then at that point, Jean is the virtual yellow jersey on the road, the virtual leader on the road, simply meaning that if Jean maintains that lead over Philippe, and they both cross the finish line in such a way where Jean crosses more than 60 seconds ahead of Philippe, then Jean would wear the yellow jersey in the next day's stage. But nobody has said that he has won the yellow jersey until he comes across and beats Philippe's time. However, it is a way of signifying that if Jean maintains this pace and Philippe maintains his pace, that Jean could win the yellow jersey at the end of the day. So therefore, he's deemed the virtual yellow jersey on the road. But you remember, I talked about the fact that the Tour de France, a grand tour, a stage race, is many races within a race. Well, we've got the individual stage winner each day. We've got the person who has the lowest accumulated time at the end of each day. They wear the yellow jersey. We also have a number of other jerseys that are available and another, uh, uh, other races that are going on out on the road. And by the way, before I go to those, one thing I should mention is that stage winners and oftentimes second place, third place, fourth place, etc. on a particular stage are given time bonuses. So going back to our example of Jean and Philippe, remember Philippe is at the top of the general classification. He has the best overall time. Let's say Philippe has a 10-second advantage over Jean going into today's stage. And let's further say that Jean crosses the finish line first, and there's a five-second time bonus awarded to Jean for doing that. Well, as long as Philippe doesn't get any time bonuses, and as long as Jean crosses the finish line more than five seconds ahead of Philippe, even if Philippe comes across six seconds after Jean, Jean will win the yellow jersey for that day and take over as the leader of the general classification simply because of the time bonus. So time bonuses matter a lot, especially when the gaps between racers are very tight. Similarly, one of the other races within the race is the race for the sprinter's jersey, the green jersey, or the Mayo Vert. This is awarded based on who has the most sprint points. At the end of every stage, or at the end of most stages, the racer who finishes first and could be second, third, and on down the line will win points based on how they finished the stage. The accumulation of those points determines who gets to wear the green jersey. Many stages also have intermediate sprints. These are lines that occur at various places on a particular stage, predetermined places in that stage, where points are awarded for those racers who cross those lines 
first. When you add up the number of points, whoever has the most gets to wear the green jersey the next day. Well, that brings up a great question. What if Jean has the best time on the general classification and Jean also has the most points for the green jersey? Well, because the Mayo Jean, the yellow jersey, is the most important jersey in the race, Jean, and because Jean can't wear two jerseys the next day, the next day he would wear the Mayo Jean, and whoever had the second most accumulated points, sprint points for the green jersey, would get to wear the green jersey on that next stage. Now, similar to the green jersey is the Mayo à Pois Rouge, which is the polka dot jersey signifying the king of the mountains. Just like intermediate sprint points, at the top of many of the climbs that the racers will encounter out on the race course, there are points to be awarded for those racers who get to the top of the climb first, second, third, etc., depending on the categorization or the difficulty of that climb. And once again, the person who has the most King of the Mountain or KOM points gets to wear that polka dot jersey in the next day's stage. And just like the Mayo Jean, and I should have mentioned this for the green jersey, at the end of the three weeks, whoever has the most sprint points wins the final green jersey. Whoever has the most KOM or King of the Mountains points gets to be considered the King of the Mountains for that edition of the Tour de France. There are other jerseys that people also wear in the Tour de France, and the next up is the white jersey. The white jersey is awarded to the rider under 25 who is best placed in the general classification. So simply, it's the best young rider's jersey for that rider under 25 who has the lowest accumulated time thus far. And once again, whoever of these racers under 25 who has the best accumulated time at the end of the three weeks is considered the best young rider of the tour. Now, this next award is not a jersey, but it is a special number that a racer gets to wear. This is the Prix de la Combativité. My French is awful, and you're going to learn that as we get into the Tour de France over the next couple of weeks. That goes to the most aggressive rider on the day's stage, and the next day, that rider gets to wear a number printed with white numbers on red, instead of black numbers on white on their jersey. There is also an award for the team who has the lowest accumulated time on the general classification, and that would be the best team award. And then finally, there is also the award for what is called the Lantern Rouge or the Red Light, signifying that that is the racer who has taken up the rear end of the train, just like a red light on a caboose, this is the racer who has the highest accumulated time on the general classification. Now, not every racer who enters the Tour de France has a chance of winning the Tour de France. You see, because of the two dozen or so teams that are invited to the Tour de France, each one of them 
tends to choose a team leader for that year's race. And that is the person who the team has chosen to support and try to get across the finish line first with the lowest accumulated GC time. And hopefully that is the person who gets to win the Tour de France when they get to Paris. So for instance, in the 2010 edition of the Tour de France, Team Radio Shack has already designated that Lance Armstrong will be the team leader for their team. And that means that every other racer on the team is there specifically to support Lance Armstrong in some way or another. And that, by the way, was one of the ways that Team Astana ended up in controversy last year because going into the Tour de France, it was not clear who was going to be the team leader of Astana. Was it going to be Lance Armstrong or was it going to be Alberto Contador? And that is where so much of the controversy and the conflict occurred for their team. Now, besides the leader of the team or what is often called the GC guys or the GC contenders, there are a lot of other types of racers, including sprinters. Team HTC Columbia has a member of its team, Mark Cavendish. Mark Cavendish is considered by many to be the fastest man in the world, not because he tends to place best on the general classification at the end of a stage race, but because he tends to be the one who gets across the finish line of each individual stage before the other racers. He's considered to be a sprinter, and he is there to gain glory for himself and for the team and get that sponsor's name out there as he crosses the finish line. There are other people on the team. There are climbing specialists, and there are domestiques. Just for example, domestiques are there solely to support their team leader. These are the individuals who are often called back to team cars in the caravan to bring bottles and food forward for the other racers. They are there to be their assistants, often called their lieutenants or their lieutenants. They are there to simply ride and support their leaders. Besides just bringing bottles and bringing clothes and bringing food to the race leaders, they are also there to help a race leader when he is in trouble, whether that's to go off with a break, and we'll talk about that in a minute, to make sure that it doesn't get too far away from the team leader, or whether that's to help bring a team leader forward when he's had a mechanical, or perhaps when he needs to bridge the gap into a break. We'll talk in a moment about how they can do that. So just know that just because somebody is in the Tour de France does not necessarily mean that they have a chance of winning it unless they have been designated a team leader or unless their team leader has fallen on difficulty and their director sportif or the person who is most in charge of that team signifies that they are now the team leader. We talked earlier about the King of the Mountains or the polka dot jersey that is awarded to the rider who has the most King of the Mountains points at the end of a stage and indeed at the end of the three weeks of the Tour de France. Well, one of the ways that those points are assessed is based on the categorization of the particular mountain or climb that the racers are ascending. 
Now, there are all kinds of formulas that are used by race directors in determining how a climb is categorized. The easiest climb, and I'm putting easiest in quotes, by the way, is a category four, moving up in difficulty until you get to a category one. And then when you get into what is called an HC category climb or or category HC for beyond category climb, and those are the toughest. Things that are considered in determining how to categorize a climb include the length of the climb, how many miles or kilometers is the actual climb from the bottom to the top. What is the altitude difference over the entire climb? What's the average grade and what is the steepest grade of a climb? What the elevation is at the summit? Where the climb comes in a stage. So, you might have two climbs that are completely identical, but the one that occurs at the end of the stage is going to have a higher category or a lower number in this case because by that point, the racers have already expended a lot of energy just getting to the base of that climb. And then finally, they'll also consider the width and the condition of the road. They put all of that into their calculators and they come up with a categorization of climbs. And as you can imagine, there are more points available for a beyond category climb than there are available for a category four climb. Now, you'll also hear some people tell a story that climbs are categorized based on the gear that you might have to have your car in as it climbed that hill. So if it's in fourth gear, it's pretty easy. But if it's in first gear, that's going to be a pretty tough climb. And a beyond category climb, well, that's one that simply your little Peugeot can't make it up. I think that story is probably apocryphal, but it gives you a good way of remembering that the lower the number, the more difficult the climb. Now, a little bit more info for you. If your head isn't already bursting from all of this Tour de France and stage racing info, I want to give you a couple of little tidbits of information now. First of all, you will hear the phrase flamme rouge. That simply means red kite or red flag. The flamme rouge or le flamme rouge comes when there is one kilometer left in that day's stage. And there's typically an archway, an inflatable archway over the race course with a little red pennant signifying to the racers that they are one kilometer from the finish. Now, we mentioned earlier that the racers wear numbers. Every racer has a unique number that they wear, and that's how you can tell who the racer is just by looking at their number. And yes, inevitably, there will be one racer who is lucky number 13. It is tradition that if you are rider number 13, that you wear your number upside down. Uh, it's basically a superstition against a superstition. Now, one of the questions that gets asked a lot is, you know, if you're riding your bike 100, 150 miles and you are going all out because you're racing, you must have to eat, you must have to drink. How does that happen? Well, there are domestiques, as I mentioned earlier, who are allowed to go back to team cars and bring bottles and bring food up to other racers on their team, but only when feeding is open, in other words, when the race commissars have said, 
okay, you can now get food and drinks from your team car. But there are also feed zones out on the race course where individuals known as soigneurs, soigneurs are really team assistants who have driven out to that portion of the race course, have set up their team support vehicle and give out bags of food and water and other products to the racers. These bags are known as musettes. And the bags are typically slung over the shoulders of the racers so that they can grab their food and eat it on the go. There are a number of cars and other vehicles that are out on the race course that you will see. Now, if you go to watch the Tour de France, the first vehicles that you are going to see come through where you are located is the advertising caravan. As you can imagine, like any professional sport, there are a number of advertisers and sponsors who want to get their message out to you so that hopefully you will buy their products. These advertisers put colorful vehicles with all of their advertising messages and imagery in this advertising caravan that drives along the race course well ahead of the racers to bring their message to you, the spectator. Now, riding with the racers out there on the road are team support vehicles, camera vehicles, officials' vehicles, medical vehicles, law enforcement vehicles, and all of these make up the so-called race caravan. This race caravan can, to the uninitiated, look like chaos. But I guarantee you, it is controlled chaos. There is someone with the officials who has a radio communicating with all of these cars, letting them know when their racers need assistance, letting them know when there's a gap between a breakaway and the main field, and telling which cars to go into the gap to support their racers that are up the road in a break. Everything that occurs in that caravan occurs with a reason and with coordination, much like a dance or a ballet. Cars are in a particular order and they are made to maintain that order unless they are needed to break away to assist a racer. That is your race caravan. Now, a couple of terms that you will hear as we go through the Tour de France. The first, and the one that you'll probably hear the most often, is simply Peloton. The Peloton is the main group of cyclists. At the start of the day, when everybody starts at a mass start stage, everyone, that entire clump of racers, even if there's 150 of them, that is the peloton. Now, there's another group of racers out there on the road. They're typically called the break or the breakaway. And these are racers who have decided to sprint ahead of the pack and try to gap the pack in an attempt to either win sprint points or king of the mountain points or to win the entire day. At that point, they're no longer the peloton. They are the break or the breakaway. And the main group of racers, the group that has the majority of the racers in it, is then the peloton. Now, you may find that as the break is down the road and maybe they're two minutes ahead of the peloton, that another group of racers, a small group, decides that they would like to get down the road and get closer to the break. They then become the chase group. They are chasing the breakaway. 
Now behind the main group, you may also find what's known as the auto boosts. These are the racers, especially as we're going up climbs, you find a lot of the sprinters getting spit out the back of the peloton because they simply can't keep up on the climbs. They become the auto boosts, the last group on the road. You may find also a gruppetto. A gruppetto is simply a small group on the road working together. Sometimes, in the case of a breakaway or a chase or even a gruppetto, you may see the racers in a line going down the road. They're doing that because they're drafting and they're working together to conserve their energy with the first man in the pace line breaking the wind and providing a wind shield for the other men in the pace line. And then after perhaps a few seconds or even a few minutes, that individual will peel off, go back to the back of the group, and now the second man in line becomes in charge of the pace line. He is supposed to maintain the pace and continue breaking the wind for the rest of the riders in the pace line. Now that's if there's a headwind. If there is a crosswind, you may find the racers forming a diagonal line across the road known as an echelon so that the first man closest to the direction that the wind is coming from is once again breaking the wind, providing a shield for the other racers in the echelon. You may also hear me talk about the UCI. The UCI is the Union Cycliste International or the International Cycling Union. The UCI is the group that is in charge of sanctioning professional cycling events worldwide. You may also hear me talk about WADA or WADA, the World Anti-Doping Agency, and they are the group that is charged with ensuring that cyclists race clean and without using any doping products. Well, that in a nutshell, perhaps a 20-minute nutshell, provides you with a good introduction, a good primer to what you're going to be seeing in July in the Tour de France, whether you watch it on TV or you follow tweets or Facebook entries or whether you just listen here on the Fredcast. I've now given you a general and very broad overview of some of the things that you will encounter as you begin to start following stage racing if you've never followed it before. I think I want to leave you with one more piece of information, and this is the thing that often surprises people. You know, we talked about the general classification, the GC, and I mentioned to you that the person who has the lowest accumulated time is the person who's leading in the GC and the person who gets to wear the maillot jaune or the yellow jersey as the leader of the Tour de France. And at the end of the three weeks, the person with the lowest accumulated time is, is considered the winner of the Tour de France. The thing that surprises people the most, although I would say the two things that surprise people the most. Number one, yes, there is prize money to be won. Typically, the person who wins the Tour de France gets a pretty healthy check, but he doesn't keep that money. He shares all of it with his team. That surprises a lot of people. The second thing that surprises a lot of people, and this is exactly what occurred with Greg LeMond when he won the Tour de France, it is entirely possible 
to win the Tour de France without winning a single stage, simply by maintaining the lowest accumulated time at the end of the race. Even though you have not won a single stage, you can still win the Tour de France. Now, I guarantee that there are little tidbits of information that have been important to you as a race fan, little tidbits of information that perhaps I've left out of this primer. I only have so much time, but if there are particular pieces of information that you think would be helpful to others, please shoot me an email or actually what would be preferred would be for you to send me a voicemail. We'll talk about those contact numbers in just a moment and I will share your voicemail on a future episode of the Fredcast. But for now, that has been your primer on stage racing and the Tour de France. Well, I can't conclude an episode of the Fredcast without thanking our sponsors. Keen Footwear for sponsoring the news in this week's episode of the Fredcast. Don't forget, go to thefredcast.com and click on the Keen banner. And when you order your products from Keen's website between now and June 26th, then use the promo code FRED at checkout. You will get free shipping. Also, don't forget our sponsor, Jensen USA, for sponsoring the features on this week's show. Go to www.jensenusa.com slash thefredcast and learn more about their great selection, great prices, and great service. And of course, thank you for your donations to the Fredcast, and thank you also for your donations to our effort against multiple sclerosis. Go to tinyurl.com slash Fred's Against MS to learn how you can help us in our fight against MS. As I mentioned earlier, I also want to let you know how you can contact me and stay in contact with the Fredcast. The best way to know what's going on with the Fredcast at any given time is to follow us on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is Fredcast. That's twitter.com slash Fredcast. We're also on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash Fredcast. To send an email, send it to thefredcast at gmail.com. And don't forget our website at www.thefredcast.com. If you'd like to send us a voicemail, our listener hotline is area code 661-513-FRED. That's 661-513-3733. And finally, I want to conclude tonight's show as we do every week with Podsafe Cycling Music. And this week's Podsafe Cycling Music was chosen specifically for the Fredcast by the Cadence Revolution, your weekly podcast of Podsafe music that's perfect for your indoor cycling. And it's available at www.cadencerevolution.com. Tonight's song is entitled Today, and it's by Second Dan. I want to thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Fredcast, for staying subscribed, and for telling your friends and riding mates about the Fredcast. It's through you that this show grows and through you that I am able to have the opportunity to bring you the coverage that I bring you every single week. So thank you so much for making this show what it is. I'll be back next week with another episode of the Fredcast, including my coverage from Press Camp 2010 right here in Park City, Utah. I am really looking forward to bringing you all kinds of new product information that you may only hear first 
until Interbike rolls around. So thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next week, but between this show and the next, enjoy the music, but most of all, enjoy the ride. Exactly as it seems